Welcome to Film for Fright Fest 2011. Hi, this is Jim. And Phil. And I've got to ask Phil, how was your weekend? It was long, it was tiring, it was foam-filled, and it was furious. With a PH. Exactly. Um, yes, welcome to this midnight video special, where we're going to be um, trying to remember what we were doing over the last few days when we were at, is it the 12th Fright Fest? Yes. In London's Leicestershire Square, <laughs> uh, where we watched an awful lot of horror movies and got to meet some of you guys, which was fantastic. Um, so yeah, I don't know how we're going to do this, we've just got a list of films scrolled down. It's kind of interesting that we're doing new films for a change. Yeah, um, yeah, including a couple which would probably... Well, if you're listening to this not long after it goes out, they'll probably be in your local uh, flea pit. Okay, so um, settle back. We're not sure how long this is going to take us, um, but uh, bear with us and enjoy the horror. Boo! Okay, so things kicked off on Thursday night. Um, got off to a bad start because I was halfway to work on Thursday morning when I realised I'd forgotten my very expensive Fright Fest pass. <laughs> I had to go all the way back home again, which delayed things a bit. So, uh, Phil, you were left down the pub to fend, to you, fend for yourself. Yeah. Uh, uh, which was a pattern that was repeated <laughs> throughout the weekend. I was going to mention that, but yeah, it was a good starting point to uh, say hellos to people. Um, Mondo boys, um, the 35mm Heroes crew, um, et al. Yep. And then, well, film-wise, kicked off with Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. Yes, uh, which is directed by Troy Nixie, I have scrolled down here. Well, actually, before that, we had the first of many highly entertaining John Carpenter spoofs, which uh, I think we got one each day, uh, with uh, specially done little spoofs, uh, which started with Escape from London. By Jake West. By Jake West, which, um, well, should we get this out of the way now? I don't think we were impressed with any of them. In no. fact, if anything, throughout the weekend, these got steadily... Progressively worse, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, the, 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 um, the goodwill that was generated at the beginning sort of died down pretty quickly. But yeah, then we got down to um, the opening film, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, um, which is, in all but name, a sort of uh, Del Toro movie. Yeah, written, co-written and produced by him, wasn't it? That's right. Yeah, based and on introduced. Um, at yeah, the there was show. A, Del Toro did a little introduction, um, but yeah, based on a TV play. I think he was very impressed with when he was young. It sounded like he'd, he'd spent a lot of time trying to track down the original and, and the rights. Um, what do you? What did you think of this? It Given this is the big opening film of Fright Fest. Yeah, well, it was really boring. It seems such an <laughs> unusual choice to open um, a horror film festival with, um, you know, a creepy supernatural thriller um, that was derivative of anything that was put on TV in the 70s, maybe, um, which is where it comes from. <laughs> I guess. Also, I mean, I've got to say I'm not a huge fan of Del Toro or maybe I shouldn't lump these two together but Neil Gaiman it was one of those I don't know if there is a proper name for this kind of thing dark fairy tales where the, you, you have a, a very young girl as the uh, protagonist and you know her kind of imaginary world taking on some kind of um, material aspect <laughs> but yeah this is a kind of um, I don't know it did start well it was pretty gruesome at the beginning yeah I guess there was so this little prologue with um 
something that happened a few centuries earlier. I suppose, yeah, it started off fairly promisingly, but then it just went nowhere fast, I thought. I thought the performances were universally bland. Mm. Um, I mean, the cast here are Guy Pearce, uh, Katie Holmes, and I don't know the girl's name, but an unusual thing is the girl... Uh, th there's meant to be, you've seen this before, some tension between... Katie Holmes and the girl because it's Kate um, Guy Pierce's daughter, isn't it? But you know, there's that step stepmother, you know, child not wanting her father taken from her affections. Um, it was he an architect, Guy Pierce's yeah. character. So there's a certain amount of I'm not very sympathetic with you anyway. If you can afford to live in this uh, huge place, warnings from locals not to well, not even warnings not to go into the basement. They pretend there isn't one. It's they've gone out of their way to cover it up. Something's in the basement. Should we tell them what? No. Okay. But um, the design of what's in the basement was the only thing I really liked about this. I didn't particularly like that. Yeah, um, it's not to say it was that well realised, but the design was quite nice. Yeah. I th to be honest, I thought this Del Toro. I know it's not his movie. He's not directed it, but I thought he. There's a segment in Hell Hellboy Two, close to the beginning, where. You know, it works much better as a ten-minute segment than a whole film built around these um, mythical, mystical yes. creatures. Yeah, um, like I said, the, the feeling I got, and we'll probably be saying this throughout the show, um, from the bunch of people who are around us, because what what's the seating capacity? Fourteen hundred. Fourteen hundred. Yeah. So yeah, we're surrounded by an awful lot of bodies for the weekend and contributing ourselves. Um, the odd thing with a lot of these films is you got a measure of things from the people around you and you kind of assume that was everyone's thought and there was a f I no I really felt that everyone was disappointed in this mm. um, but then as the weekend wore on in fact right at the end I was just ordering drinks at the pub next to a stranger I could see it was from Fright Fest I said oh what was your favourite movie and he went don't be afraid of the dark <laughs> and he I think he knew it wasn't that it was an unusual choice but it really worked for him so um there you go. But um, he was a struggling alcoholic, obviously. <laughs> Given the prices of that pub, you would be struggling. Yeah. Um, but no, it. I know it wasn't perhaps the um, first choice um, the organisers had to open the festival with. Delta obviously has a you know a following and a certain cachet to him, but um, something, yeah, so, something stronger would have been. Uh, it would have been helpful. Yeah, just something more audience involving, like, you know, the previous year was Hatchet 2, which by no means a great movie, but it was full of laughs and send ups and a lot of gore, which, you know, pleases kind of everyone in the audience to some degree. Just gets everyone G'd up, yeah, which you need for when you're going to be sat in the cinema for five days <laughs> and stood in the pub. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so after that, we spent a good few hours down the pub around the corner of the Imperial, which is. Um, which was our base of operations, ours, everybody's base of operations. The bar staff must have uh, wondered what was going on <laughs> with all these extra bodies turning up in their um, awful T-shirts <laughs> and hygiene. Uh, but yeah, echoing what Phil said earlier, we got to meet um, some of you guys. That was really fantastic. Um, Andy Rowdock. Yeah, hello Andy. Hope Hi. you got back safe to Belgium. Good um, old, yes. Good old Andy, who I'm uh, indebted to uh, for giving me his last croissant on Saturday evening, and who I'm not so indebted for for giving for sharing his last bits of uh, Jack Daniels last bits, let's drop the dregs of, uh, the dregs of his Jack brand. Daniels on the Monday evening, and uh, yeah, yeah, which stopped Maybe. us recording last night, which was our original plan. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> 
yeah, and also um, Lee, Count Fosco of the Movie Matters podcast, uh, who spent the whole weekend sitting by, well, yeah. when, when we were all together. Um, Lee is hopefully doing his own um, Fright Fest podcast special so um hopefully if you stick the two of ours together we should you should get a, a fuller picture because we didn't watch every single film there uh and who else nick hi nick hello nick if you're listening to this yeah i hope you got back safe nick uh and yes got to briefly meet one of the organizers paul who seemed very excited yeah very yeah. animated i'm sure he was just running off adrenaline for the first night of this but um yeah great to i mean I'm not sure if the guys will ever listen to this, but a big thank you to the organisers of Fright Fest who did such a great job. It's um, given it's been going that long, their enthusiasm <laughs> getting everything sorted out. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, they did a great job sequencing the movies. I thought because I, I was a bit worried that you'd just be watching the same film over and over again. If you got my, if you see what I mean. But mm. they, there was a good amount of variety going on. So a great job. Um, okay, so after that we went back for the final screening of this, um, well it was half a day wasn't it, which was an anthology piece called Theatre Bazaar which I was really looking forward to because it was featuring two shorts from Buddy Giovanazzi who people hopefully remember from Combat Shock, Combat Shock which we covered a number of episodes back which we liked a lot and Richard Stanley was doing another short um, yeah in fact his was the first one uh, there's a framing kind of story around it with um, Udo Kier as a kind of weird paper mache looking puppet it, yeah kind of like, a bit like the sword doll or something like that yeah, yeah I mean he's putting some work in there stomping <laughs> around uh, like a a mechanical man <laughs> like a mechanical maniac uh, and yeah what the gist of this is he's telling his uh, um, he's like an MC on stage at some weird vaudeville thing and there's but one woman in the audience who looked a lot like Larry David's wife from uh, Curb <laughs> Your Enthusiasm yeah. but that was the framing device so yeah you had stories from Richard Stanley which opened um, opened the the collection that's called Mother of Frogs Toads Toads because a lot of it was in French ah what did you think of that then? Given this is Richard Stanley's return to genre kind of filmmaking. Well, as a, yeah, as I just said, uh, in French, Toad is crapaud, and I thought it was pretty crap. Um, yeah, just really disappointing. Um, yeah, there was a Lovecraftian element to it. Um, there was a, an effects monster that I heard a number of people saying looked like it just come off a Doctor Who set, uh, which I think is a bit harsh. And I thought. Oh, didn't look too bad. It was okay, but it, it was, was long as well. Uh, um, yeah, it was. Ju it just felt quite so-so. It really did feel. Given this is an anthology, you're thinking back to um, other anthology horrors you've seen, and it's our old friend Amicus. It kind of felt like one of those films. It was two tourists pick up, you know, get involved in some local tradition, uh, which they think is funny, and um, and then one of them gets a bit more. Uh, serious about it. There's a kind of she's not a gypsy, is she? But there's a, the sort of um, is she a fortune teller? Kind yeah, of figure? it's kind of alluded to that. Yeah, yeah the, with a thick Eastern European accent. Oh no, she's meant to have a French accent. Really? Yeah, wow. that's how uh, poor that is. Yeah. <laughs> well, no. In fairness, as well, watching this at sort of midnight after forgetting my pass earlier <laughs> in the day, but no, it just seemed kind of humdrum. Um, but that's that, that's especially true when you watch the second one, which was the Buddy G one um, called "I Love You," which I really loved. Yeah, same here. It was the standout one for me. Yeah, um, 
a great thing with it was it wasn't obviously a horror thing, was it? You were getting quite caught up in this drama, which was basically an older guy. Uh, is he French or is he Polish? I think he's or? German or Polish, yeah. And she's French, his, yeah. his wife. Um, and it's obvious that their relationships come to the, the end of their rope together. And, um, yeah, he was quite pleading. He did remind me a bit of Polanski for various <laughs> reasons. Yeah. But you're watching this and getting quite caught up in that and thinking, this is part of a horror anthology, you know, a horror anthology with Udo Kier as a creepy paper mache robot man. <laughs> um, how does this qualify as horror? And um, it, it does sort of, but in a very unusual way. Yeah, there is a payoff at the end, um, but yeah, there's that sort of um, twisting of reality or the, the protagonist yeah. or antagonist. Um, mind frame towards the end as the the short film closes but mm. I, yeah I thought it was really yeah. really well act, acted and really well thought out you know yeah. it, like you say it, it, you did keep thinking well where, how how is this going to finish but yeah, yeah, I well, really yeah how will it, it get its horror credentials and I mean that was that was kind of what was so great about it that what drove this story was um, the failure of this relationship and the guy's failure to grasp why it wasn't working you know what he was going to do now um and yeah i've got to say when you're watching an awful lot of sort of i was going to say zombie and vampire movies we didn't really see any of those <laughs> at all did we they did it it's great then when you've got something like that which yeah, th you can tell the starting point of that story wasn't what will be scary what will be gruesome it was more like he had a uh, buddy g had a story to tell and it happened to he happened to use horror as a way of telling it i mm. guess yeah. Oh yes. After this, Tom Savini, makeup whiz, uh, treated us to wet dreams. Do you want to give us a little bit of? Can you remember that? Uh, Do you remember your wet dreams from Thursday night? I'm struggling to remember. It was what basically was the, uh, the guy who kept waking up from dreams. It's that oh, one right, yeah. again, something you've seen done many times before. Guy gets to a terrible situation, wakes up, and then just, you know it keeps going on and on. Mobius loop. Um, the idea here being he's a bit of a dirty dog, isn't he? Isn't he cheating on his wife? In his fantasies. In his fantasies, yeah. Yeah. Um, which, yeah, we, I mean, something we failed to mention was this did get an introduction um, before the screening began from uh, a few of the directors. I, I did like Buddy G. He just seemed kind of... He didn't seem grumpy, but he seemed <laughs> mildly... He looked like he'd rather be maybe chowing down on a burger at this point. Of the yeah, I think he was slightly bemused why he was there. Yeah, and yet he was there for the whole weekend. <laughs> he was, yeah. You, you got to uh, be hang ignored out with by him. <laughs> oh. <laughs> he was kind of laconic and uninterested in uh, someone going how much they love combat shock at him, and she's probably heard for a while. <laughs> but during the introduction, I mean, it, it was mentioned that a lot of, even though the directors had all been told to go off and do their own thing, there wasn't any um, consultation between them. An awful lot of the stories did seem to be about failed relationships, <laughs> quite by coincidence. Um, which I don't know. I did find interesting. I mean, that is, I suppose, it's a fear we all have. We're probably not all thinking we're going to get, um, you know, um, going to come across a fortune teller who has a frog fetish, <laughs> toad fetish. Sorry, but yeah, we've probably all had um, bad relationships at some point. Yeah, no, that's fair. Enough. I suppose it is quite intriguing when you compare it to. A creep show, or uh, well, like I said, the Amicus ones. I yeah. suppose. I've got to say, I found the Tom Savini one very disappointing. He appears in himself as a sort of sleazy psychologist, uh, psychiatrist, doesn't he? Or yeah, counselor. 
also a little um, potentially suave in his sharp suit. Uh, you imagine he thinks he is. Yeah, I know, mean, but there's a certain amount it, of that would have been a suave look in the eighties, I think. Absolutely, <laughs> but yeah. Like I say, next to that Buddy G one, anything which seemed too much of a conventional, yeah, creep show style um, horror story kind of didn't really work. I suppose that's a problem with the whole film. It didn't really gel. It felt like the half of the directors were trying to do something quite innovative, and the other half were trying to sort of go back to a style from the seventies, uh, which was even in the eighties in creep show that was still spoofing stuff from the seventies, wasn't it? It wasn't yeah. even the idea of spoofing it isn't even that original. Um, so yeah, you weren't too taken with the Savini either. No, I was just kind of really struggling to remember what it was about before. So uh, yeah, that's problematic in itself. Yeah, kind I of. Suppose another thing to say with that is Savini is famous for his mechanical effects, and this didn't really. I don't remember there being much gore. There's the scene at the very end, the punchline, but yeah, which kind of annoyed me a bit as well because it reminded me of uh, Lynch's daughter's. Oh yeah. Debut. Yes, let's not say any more about that. <laughs> Okay, so I know we differed uh, in our opinions on the next one, which is Douglas Buck's one, The Accident. Do you want me to remind you what happened in that? Uh, no, I remember this one. Yeah. Okay. I just, it's, um, is it a woman and her daughter you go, you're doing driving well. <laughs> in a car? Yeah. And they remembering. Yeah, I think it's kind of the, the, the presumably the mother, exp- um, the daughter asking questions oh, and the about mother explaining, but it's kind of like a bedtime. Thing, but all the what we're actually seeing is a um, something that happened to them much earlier. Mm. Uh, presumably, it does play around with time a bit, doesn't it? But yeah. they've got um, there's a kind of biker and an accident involving a deer. Um, I don't want to say too much more about it than that, but I really like this. Again, it wasn't. You could tell the starting point wasn't how do I scare people. It was, you know, the the director and the writer wanted to say something, and it happened to fit in with this. Yeah, because it again, death will happen to all of us, and it might happen very suddenly, as uh, as is the case here. And it, it did, yeah. The fact it played around with time, it, it, it you weren't quite sure if things were happening in the past or the future. I really enjoyed that, you know. Yeah, I think in retrospect, I was probably overly harsh on it. I just felt it didn't. We've already said that they didn't. They don't really go together that well anyway. These films, but I thought I was a bit too far removed from the others. Mm. Um, I think if I'd have watched that um, as a standalone, I might have enjoyed it a lot more. Yeah. Um, I can say the film doesn't work because of that. It's it seems like it's trying to accommodate <coughs> too many strange things. I'm all for eclecticism, but um, <laughs> Udo Kier and his paper mache robot. Okay, so the next one was called Dark Stain, I think, um, by Karim Hussain, which was, um, you're, you're scowling at me now, you remember this? Yeah, I didn't like this, it's, is this the eye juice one? Eye juice, yes. Yeah, um, basically a woman who goes around, um, does she kill people? I'm having trouble remembering it. Yeah, she does because or, I think that's the. And then at the moment of death, she um, yes ex- uses a syringe to extract fluid from their eyeballs and inject it into her own eyeballs. So then she gets the memories. Yeah. And the experiences of that. There's person. a bit strange days going on there. Strange there? days, <laughs> or yeah, the old Doctor Who story arc in space. <laughs> yeah, you know, that didn't actually have syringes in the eyeball, but um, yeah, again, um, this felt a bit too much like an old amicus thing and like I say this is oh, this is a film of two halves um, 
Well, there was a there was a weird kind of feminist message going on. I thought well, in some ways, but sort of. Again, the director was there and was telling us how much he loved uh, women and eyeballs. I think. Um, again, this was the one with, as with the Savini, with a twist ending, and I just felt the others had done a, a good job of not having, aha, you know, tales from the crypt kind of endings. That you know, it, it wasn't such a bad thing, but it it was kind of a cheesy ending I just found it was quite well made though I suppose it was kind of interestingly put together yeah but I thought it had a real 90s feel it was like watching Hackers or something like that alright even the sort of you know the clothes and stuff that he's going for that like cyberpunk almost you know yeah look aesthetic which it just seems so terribly dated now and I did find it. it's obviously a guy who's written and who's done this you know that it was by numbs was it titillating but it had um, testosterone sort of written all over it I thought yeah I've got to that's a bit um, I, I agree it did there was something about I can't put my finger on but it did feel like um, a man trying to put himself into a woman's world and a tank girl yeah it, did, it didn't really work so well um, by no means the worst of the collection though and then I've got to say at this point you out, I bailed. You? Yeah, I mean, I I don't blame you because another a problem with anthologies is you've got no idea how long they're going to be going on for. Um, five stories and a framing device seemed like enough, but when this last, what did turn out to be the last story called Sweets by David Gregory, uh, not to be confused with the guitarist from XTC, um, you were like, I've got to go now, because you know, <laughs> it was cracking off for one in the morning. I should. It think, was, at this yeah. Point. Um, but I've got to say, you, you missed a good story there. I, I enjoyed that. And it was very short as well. I think it was probably five minutes long. Um, Typical. It, difficult to describe. I've not really seen much Almodovar or Louis Brunel, but it's what I imagine those kind of um, European, slightly off-kilter kind of... Because it doesn't have much of a plot. It's more of a setup with... What was it? There was a guy who looked kind of a lot like Tim Burton just... Crying his eyes out at clearly his ex-girlfriend. So, like we say, there's a there's um uh, not a, not a theme. Um, so, like I say, an awful lot of these did seem to just coincidentally deal with failed relationships. Yeah, he's begging her to uh, for the relationship to still still be on, and she's like putting him down um, verbally. And yeah, you can guess where the film's going, I suppose. Um, but she has. She and all the women in this story have very... They're on the verge of being very attractive, but then have these very dark, drawn-on eyebrows. Um, and this is it. The whole thing had a really strange visual feel to it. Um, and that's it. All these very attractive-seeming women, but just stuff in their faces full of ice cream and all kinds of peculiar delicacies. Um, there's not much more to tell you about it. It does have a kind of Grand Guignol kind of feel to it. Um, but no, I I thought it was one of the better things. Basically, this film would have been how long was it? It was probably only an hour and forty or something. The entire mm. film. Um, but I've, it would have been better if you know I can see there's there's a selling point in having a Paul St- uh, Richard Stanley and Tom Savini there. But those two for me could have been uh, jettisoned. Yeah, probably. Actually, the framing device is okay. It's it's pretty good, but it doesn't really work given the sort of nature of some of the other the stories in there. Uh, so yeah, we did we have gone on about theatre bazaar for a while, but it's in the nature of anthologies. 
So, that was the end of Thursday. I make love stories. I mean, there's, all, there's love in all of my films. And then Friday came around. Yes. The birds were tweeting. <laughs> the fans were tweeting, yes. It was, uh, yeah, yeah, the fans were yeah. tweeting, that's for sure. Okay. Um, so, yeah, Friday morning we went straight for the Discovery screen. Uh, or the Disco screen, the as disco it's lovingly screen. called. Yeah, the, the main features at Fright Fest, which are in the uh, Empire One, which is about 1,400 seat capacity. The Discovery screen, nearer 80, is it? I would have thought, yeah, less than 100. So it's quite intimate, although I was very pleased to be sitting down the front and stretching my legs, so I was starting to feel cooped up already after those, um, well, there's only two screenings we were at previously to that. Mm. But... Um, yeah, the first movie we saw Friday was The Man Who Saw Frankenstein Cry, which is a documentary on Spanish um, horror actor and filmmaker in general, wasn't yeah, it? So he yeah, had his finger in a lot of pies, a lot of paellas. Paellas. <laughs> um, Paul Nashi. Alan Jones came out to do one of his introductions, which, uh, with no disrespect to him, it, it does seem everything he mentions is his favourite of that particular it's my favourite horror documentary on a Spanish actor <laughs> but yeah it's full of enthusiasm no um, that's a good thing yeah. how did you find this did you know Paul Nash's name particularly I've, I think I'd read the name um, before but never paid heed to it um, so yeah I, the fact it was a documentary interested me anyway I like w watching documentaries even if I've not got that much knowledge about the subject um, but yeah I, I, I did enjoy it I thought it was pretty poorly put together though yeah, it, it was, was pretty very, basic it was pretty cheap even though you have got some big names here you've got John Landis and Joe Dante and people who obviously genuinely love Paul Nashi and grew up seeing his films they are kind of the equivalent Spanish equivalent of uh, Hammer mm. um, I don't think I've seen any Paul Nashi possibly one but I'm not sure it was him because <laughs> a lot of his films had very similar titles he, he's famous for playing um, I think he's meant to be the one actor who's played Dr. Frankenstein, the Wolfman, the Mummy, and Dr. Jekyll. Yeah. Like the big titans. Of yeah, he's done them all. <laughs> um, but yeah, a lot of his films were called The Wolfman Meets Such and Such. And in fact, that was that was a bit I really loved in this when they went through Nash's films and said, I don't know, it includes The Werewolf Meets Dr. Jekyll, The Werewolf Meets Frankenstein. But then came his greatest triumph. The Wolfman beats the Vampire Woman, as if that was a whole new plateau of <laughs> filmmaking for him. Um, yeah, it's not a particularly well-made documentary. It does its job, you know. It tells you, it, it gives you a good potted biography of him in seventy-five minutes, I should think. Yeah, they seem to have. In, they've got interviews with known uh, figures from the film world, as well as people who worked with Nashi. But just the the big stumbling point for me was the soundtrack was um, meant to probably be orchestral and piano and quite moving, which didn't really fit the subject. It wasn't like he had a particularly tragic life or anything. But it was all played clearly on a keyboard somewhere, wasn't it? Yeah, it was... It, was a it bit felt like something you get at a funeral home or something. Yeah, it's kind of... In a cheesy way. And it was always really hyped up in yeah. the moments. You know, it was so uh, cliched in the delivery of the music, just as, you know, as an ebb in his... Um, yeah career or you know it's coming to the end of his life been asked to do some arms running for the user <laughs> yeah. yeah. oh yeah thing. god i almost forgot about that um, but also presented by this guy who looked kind of like william hurt with helen mirren's haircut <laughs> but yeah and also a, a major issue with like terrible terrible subtitles 
yeah that uh, were, oh in terms of how they've been translated how they've been translated yeah. and sometimes you had double language subtitles as well it was a bit confusing as I say we were up till very late the previous day I mean th- th- this can't be helped but we're just telling you what happened we were up till very late the previous day watching this at 10.30 in the morning and the screen is about 12 foot high is it you think in yeah, yeah. Empire 4 we're possibly six feet or something from the screen so you're right up close and you're reading you're looking up at someone's face and then looking down to read the subtitles and it would cut between uh, Spanish uh, people um, Spanish people speaking with English subtitles but then it will suddenly flit around to English people with Spanish subtitles because your head's going up and down you're thinking why am I reading this <laughs> and it did get very bewildering I've got to say so um, but yeah also as well this clearly wasn't really made for projection on a screen that size was it it did look like um, in fact I think throughout the weekend most things were probably blu-ray projections or yeah yeah I mean they were good quality but but this was um yeah, it did, did have that kind of transfer look but to also it. the people were so close to camera sometimes yeah. that I just ended up staring at their um, like pock marks or moles and stuff <laughs> I was drawn into their uh, facial canvas um, any of the Nashi films on offer there that you thought I might check out uh, the Gialli one oh, was, Gialli that, was, was it Doll with Blue Eyes or something the baby doll with blue eyes because uh, I think Lee was like he, he's, yeah, he's pretty up a big Gialli fan um, but yeah, definitely that. And well, I'm gonna have to watch one of the Wolfman versus whoever at some point. Uh, not tempted by exorcism. Oh, oh yeah, which yeah, um, I did enjoy that story. It, uh, yeah, exorcism was obviously a ripoff of Exorcist. It looked very similar from the clips uh, we saw with Nashi as a, a priest and a, a girl in a nightgown with a lot of milky contact lenses going on during the seventies. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, we saw an awful lot of trailers throughout the weekend, uh, vintage trailers as well. Um, but I love the story that there, uh, it was done as a cash in on The Exorcist, but opened in Spain ahead of The Exorcist because there were so few prints of it. And when the real Exorcist arrived, no one was very interested. Yeah. <laughs> they felt they'd already seen it. <laughs> oh dear. I wonder if that would piss freaking off. I think he'd admire that, maybe. Uh, <laughs> who knows? That'd be a wor- if we ever see him, that will be the question we're asking. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And then. We were back in the disco screen, straining our necks once more. For for uh, a horrible way to die. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, I've got to say, you picked, you sort of sequenced the films for us. I was very happy to go along with your choices. Why um, did you particularly want to see this, or was it just what was on at the main screen didn't seem? so? Well, I heard it was a low-fi U.S. indie um, sort of serial killer. And I think someone likened it to a mumblecore film, which was a, a genre that you weren't too aware of. Mm. Or it's just, you know, it's a journalistic term more than anything. Um, but yeah, th- I thought that was really appealing anyway, and I really enjoyed this. I thought it was a really good film. Um, but again, that sitting so close to the screen in a film that just does the sort of in and out focusing quite a lot. You. Um, yeah, it has quite a distinct visual look to it, yeah. it? with, uh, like you say, it's going in and out of focus. There's a lot of scenes in this, um, we'll explain what the setup is in a second, in this woman's um, f- apartment, isn't she? She has a lot of coloured lights around which are constantly out of focus. Um, cross-editing, it's kind of, you know, you're not quite sure if something's happening in the past or the future again, or sorry, the past or the present. Um, that did make me feel quite drowsy I've got to say um, 
the film itself, I mean, the setup is, yeah, a woman at uh, Alcoholics Anonymous meeting um, is, I, I can't really say seduced because it's not, <laughs> there's a guy who tries it on with her and, you know, they, they get a sort of very basic relationship going. Um, but all the time we're cutting to a serial killer um, whose name I forget, was it Tyrell something? Tyrell Garrett, is it? Something like that. Garrett Tyrell. But again, it's a while before you really understand how these two stories connect. I wasn't that taken with it. it. I suppose the real acid test is after about an hour I was feeling quite like it should be winding up and I looked at my watch and realised there was another half an hour to go but it felt like I'd already sat through quite a bit. I think you noticed um, I was nodding off mm, yeah. a little bit. <laughs> That's not necessarily the film's fault. I mean, I was, like like we've established, very tired. Um, but yeah, it does build up to... It, I, I did think it was quite satisfying how the two stories do in, in, intertwine. And then you have... Um, did the resolution work for you? Yeah, I, I thought it did, but there was a lot of discussion in the pub afterwards about it. And well, even in the lobby immediately afterwards. Yeah, oh, that's so, true, actually. Yeah. yeah, we were just outside, weren't yeah. we? Um, and I sort of became more swayed right. by what was being said after, um, in so much that a lot of people thought that it it was rounded up in a more of a, a crowd-pleasing, predictable way. Mm. Um which <laughs> probably doesn't mean a lot if you haven't seen the movie. Yeah, I mean, it does have a definite ending, which isn't just the killer gets killed or kills someone. There's something there's something quite specific sort of twist ending to it, isn't there? But, again, in retrospect, and like just to think over it myself, I, I, yeah, it was perfectly, uh, perfectly all right with me, the ending. Um, but, yeah, I, I really enjoyed the whole film. I thought there were like, really strong performances throughout, particularly the serial killer guy AJ Bowen I think mm -hmm. the actor's name is and yeah it had that sort of indie feel to it like that I like about US indie movies where the you feel like you're just in that world you know that a side of America that you don't always see um, in the in the glint of Hollywood um, which is really something that appeals to me yeah, but yeah, it did seem to be a hit with quite a few people. I know, again, Alan Jones really enjoyed it. it he seemed very keen to come over and get our reactions. Yeah, yeah he not did. me and you especially, but <laughs> just the, the group of us that uh, stumbled out just ahead of us, going off for probably a, a pint again. Where are we going? Still trying to figure that out. Well, I'm not sure what we missed, but I then went on a little later to watch Urban Explorers. Well, I did. I gave up after two minutes. Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> there was some technical issues. Yeah, um, urban explorers. Oof, um, this is kind of a potholing around, possibly Berlin. I think it is Berlin, definitely. Yeah, yeah uh, the the setup appealed to me. Yeah, it's it, it's uh, you know holiday makers again go to Berlin. Local guy's going to take them under the city to uh, various Nazi, Nazi if not bunkers, then certainly sort of hidden city kind of areas so I was looking forward to some good uh, zombie Nazi action there may have been a short before it but if not the film uh, most of these things at Fright Fest all of them in fact they don't come up with caption cards and certificates like you'd usually get at the cinema because of uh, because it's a festival um, that opening had music but no dialogue and I think were you thinking that might have been an artistic touch to begin with I did for a few seconds and I realised it just looked like a a late 
an early 1990s Kodak advert or something. Yeah, because you could see lips were moving. There was music on the soundtrack. But the tip-off for me was that the music did fade down and fade up, so it was clear that there was something wrong with the audio track. And uh, I think... Uh, did you leave before the dialogue came on? Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's, <laughs> I, I just thought it, it really didn't grab me immediately. Yeah, you, you had a bunch of beautiful people hanging around Berlin. Uh, it looked a little bit, it's probably unfair of me, um, like, uh, what's the Ethan Hawke thing? Um, before Sunrise. Sunrise yeah. yeah. Which is, I remember being a good film, but it wasn't really what I was in the mood for with my mm. subterranean zombie Nazis, you know, come on, <laughs> get your act together. Um, yeah, you left, uh, Nick and myself sat there for a while, and I've got to say I was dozing off um, quite quickly. It was just something you felt you'd seen a lot before. Um, it was particularly telling that I dozed off, and when I woke up, it was because there was a jolt. There was some loud, a loud noise or something, which happened an awful lot <laughs> during the whole festival. And when I opened my eyes to see what had caused this, there was a cockroach on the screen, you know. <laughs> Uh, in the film, I mean, it wasn't like the, the sanitation was so poor there. Yeah, that oh, well, this is interesting that. now. Um, at that point, another screw up. Um, there was uh, two characters speaking in German to each other for some length of time, several minutes. And you think to begin with, well, we don't need, they haven't bothered with subtitles because we don't need to know. But when it went on longer and longer, and it was clear that they were actually trying to work out a plan between each other, I thought. <laughs> this, you know, the dialogue going the cockroach, so yeah I joined you, uh, I think I joined you down the pub afterwards. Wise decision. Yeah. Okay, which brings us on to the next film of the day. Glass Man. <laughs> From the glass men in the pub to uh, <laughs> the glass man in the screen Empire yeah. screen one. Well, we call it Andy Nyman's Glass Man. He stars in it, um, but it's directed by uh, Christian Solomeno, um, who also appears in it as a sort of uh, Thane actor. Um, and he was in Dario Argento's Mother of Tears, apparently. Wow. Which I've not seen. But not many people not have bothered. To. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what was Kim Newman's thing on that? I think he said, because um, that, that completes the whole um, Mother's trilogy, doesn't it? Which starts with Suspiria and Inferno, and then after 20 odd years ends with Mother of Tears. And I think his, his thing in Nightmare Movies was this is rather like watching the first two Lord of the Rings films, waiting 20 years and then getting Hawk the Slayer. <laughs> But um, no, Glassman. Um, do you want to talk a little about the setup of that? Yeah, so it opens up with um, an apparently happy couple, very wealthy. He works somewhere in the city. She's a bit of a American actress. This is Neve Campbell. Neve Campbell. Yeah. She stays at home, spending his money frivolously. Um, and then, as it as the film progresses over the next fifteen or so minutes, you realise that. He doesn't have any money left. He's actually been fired from his job, and he's just going to work in the the vain hope of either getting his job back or living in a kind of fantasy as though he can't accept that he's yeah. been fired. Yeah, he doesn't um, want his wife to find out, so he just drives to work every day. I think we see him have an exchange with the HR people and his boss. I've forgotten till now. Actually, his boss oh is Don yes. Warrington from Rising <laughs> Damp. <laughs> who uh, gives him a mouthful yeah it was I think the only thing because there's so many films here I, I kind of briefly looked through the um, the descriptions before we went to the festival but I remember them saying this was a recession horror which sounded uh, interesting mm. uh, and it was I mean um, I, I did uh, well, we've not really explained much more of the plot but yeah you've, you've got Nyman's character and uh, things go badly wrong because he has these debts 
um, and well you'll see this in the trailer so um, I, I don't mind revealing it but eventually um, James Cosmo who if you don't know the name you'll, you'll probably recognise his face from sort of 70s cop shows onwards like the Sweeney would be some kind of quite hard character who turns up and he's brilliant he's really intimidating but he has for various reasons inherited a debt and Andy Nyman is kind of now this isn't the plot it's not that he is his property but he's he's really got sway over him and Nyman's just falling to pieces and then yeah there are twists and turns after that which we won't go into hmm. but yeah it's it's not a supernatural kind of horror movie it is it's something that you feel could happen you know yeah yeah it, much in the same way the the Buddy G one yeah. for um, Theatre Bizarre absolutely you know the the horror is that this could really happen isn't it um, something that we could the viewer can hopefully relate to in some way yeah because I got to chat to the director very briefly on the Monday night and you know he said that's the, the whole point of it was that you know we wanted to do a horror film that like mm. not, not your regular run of the mill horror films and I think they I thought they did it quite well because yeah. I, I felt the kind of despair of the character, you know, I could relate to that. Absolutely, but at the same time, because Nyman came on at the end and was saying it was so unusual to have a film where the protagonist is weak, he's a weak man, you know, there's nothing heroic about him, he's not... It would be easy to dislike him, but at the same time I think everyone's going to be sympathetic because we've probably all been in that position where we've maybe try to keep up appearances or we're desperately trying to hold on to our lives rather than face the facts of it and, and move on because is it throughout it you're thinking we'll just tailor her just downscale your life because they do have an absurd kind of lifestyle don't they yes there's yeah. the great bit when Cosmo is going in round the house with Nyman and seeing what he could um, <laughs> repossess I guess books he, he's looking at the book saying yeah, I got these yeah, first editions. Why would you bother with those? You've not read any of these, have you? You just want to look clever. And you know, it's uh, Nyman looks so defeated. <laughs> it's great. I've not really seen Nyman acting much before. Uh, he's in Severance, isn't he? He's in Severance, Dead Set, like. uh, Black Death. But this is quite a sustained... Perf well, he's the main character in yeah, it. Um, yeah. I think he does a good job. He's very good. Yeah, I, I think the main complaint from most people, though, is that it was too long... Um, which um yeah I could I agree with it was nearly two hours long could have mm. been a, a very much taller ninety minutes and I think especially because without revealing it the plot does take a sharp left at one point uh, which will remind you of a very famous film um, but I don't think that matters but once that once that happens you should probably be wrapping the film up rather than carrying it on for yeah a little longer than it needed yeah, yeah. but yeah but really great stuff yeah a again because you're surrounded by so many as well as as well or as badly as a lot of these films are made they can kind of bleed into each other when you're watching them day after day so to have things like this and yeah the buddy g movie that they really stood out because they weren't doing horror in a conventional way so yeah highly recommended definitely the horrors on display are the horrors of losing your job the horrors of losing your wife, the horrors of having being shamed in front of your friends and family. And then I, we rounded off Friday with a horror comedy from the States, Tucker and Dale versus Evil. A lot of people very enthused. In fact, when we bumped into um, Paul McAvoy, is it, the organiser, mm. um, I think it was one of his real recommends. And in fact, didn't he come out at the beginning and say he was very envious? I can't remember. <laughs> Of people watching it, of for, people the first watching it time. for the first time. I'm pretty sure it was Paul. It might have been one of the other 
organisers. Um, I gotta say, I didn't have high hopes for this just because the title is so awful. It really feels like going back to Buffy the Vampire Slayer when you've got that juxtaposition kind of thing. Um, it, it really looked like it was going to be something that was only really going to work for horror fans. Um, I really did enjoy it though. It was a great, and yeah, I've got to say, watching it with 1400 horror fans really um, made it work. You know, I, I'm not sure if it would be, I think it would still be fun to watch at home on uh, DVD, but probably, yeah, obviously it's not going to be the same experience. Yeah, no, I, th- I definitely felt buoyed by the crowd, <laughs> I reckon. Um, I didn't think it was going to be that bad, to be honest. I mean, it had Pirate Steve from Dodgeball in it. So yeah. That, <laughs> that was a bit of a draw for me. And, yeah, so the setup is you've got Tucker and Dale, two um, rednecks, for want of a better description, who were yeah. hillbillies, who were just, you know, on the way to um, the vacation home, which is basically like the Evil Dead to uh, Hut in the Woods. Yeah, they're very domesticated hillbillies, aren't they? Yeah, they're really yeah. good natured, the pair of them. I think you've usually got um, Tucker always trying to give Dale advice on, you know, you've got to believe in yourself a bit more. And yeah, if you like that girl, go up and talk to her. <laughs> and uh, yeah, inevitably you've then got the, the um, blandly photogenic sort of Californian teens who come along. Um, and everything Tucker and Dale does is interpreted by the teens as hillbillies trying to kill them. And I guess, yeah, it goes into more of an Inspector Clouseau thing there when there's just a series of ridiculous accidents, fatal accidents. And, you, you know, it's pretty much got that one joke, but it's done so well. And again, watching it with a horror crowd, everyone was laughing as soon as the setup of the joke appeared because you knew what was going to happen mm. 30 seconds or a minute down the line. But it was really inventive. I, I loved it, yeah. In fact, it was a lot like One Foot in the Grave, again, when you've got the ridiculous coincidences and things going yeah. on. Yeah. Um, it did outstay its welcome a bit, I thought. Uh, pos- yeah, actually, come to think of it now, I was just thinking of the end there. Yeah, it, yeah. it could have wrapped up a good ten minutes earlier, perhaps. And especially because with the end, not to say too much about it, um, there's a kind of a it should be just a series of jokes but there's a kind of plot thread that you know once it's been referenced needs to be clarified and and sorted out you know resolved by the end and i was thinking yeah this this can't end till it's had that that thing sort of addressed um but really good fun really enjoyed it yeah and i, I do love the you know the the twist of roles for everyone in it you know i think that's quite a, a fun idea yeah because you're absolutely i was worried in the first minute because i just thought it was going to be a very bad a scary movie style horror spoof. Boof, yeah. But the fact that you're really meant to hate the teens in it because they're so vain and vacuous. Yeah, uh, yeah I loved it. So that wrapped up your day pretty. M- oh, no, no. You did try Stormhouse. Yeah, I did try it, but yeah. I was just. I was nodding off. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. plus a, a military ghost story. I, yeah, I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> Someone who doesn't really like ghost stories. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we rounded off the day with Stormhouse, which again was at the Discovery screen, and I was very pleased to be stretching my legs. So, uh, yeah, I got back down the front. You, uh, I've got to say, it wasn't a packed screening by any measure, was it? No, it wasn't. Because this didn't start till half past 11. Um, as Phil said, yeah, Stormhouse is uh, it's a low-budget British movie where I think the opening caption is the British military... 2002 capture a supernatural entity so uh, parallels with uh, Michael Mann's movie The Keep um, 
but extremely low budget. A friend of mine at work, she when she knew I was going to Fright Fest, she told me she'd seen a, a, a deliberate test screening of this where the audience were asked directly by the director, you know, did this work, did this not work, what were you keeping? Um, and she did say it's it's very low budget and there's some creaky acting. And uh, I mean, I don't know how much of it you got through if you were dozing off. But yeah, 20 minutes, I think, I managed. Yeah, I mean, it is... Uh, uh, I did like it because I do like the setup and it's so cheap. I I just really like the fact that someone obviously wasn't doing this as a money spinner. They were obviously really determined to make a film and try and do as good a job of po as possible of it. But yeah, that that thing with the creaky acting. I was watching, thinking, yeah, these are all the director's mates, probably. Um, but yeah, the acting didn't seem that bad. And then <laughs> there's a point when, because this is all. Soldiers and there's a parapsychologist um, f uh, heroine. A guy from Whitehall turns up about uh, an hour in, and uh, he looked very familiar. He was actually there was a '70s sitcom called Butterflies with Jeffrey Palmer and Nicholas Lindhurst, uh, and Lindhurst's brother was played by this guy who I hadn't seen in anything in about 30 years. But his acting is absolutely appalling in it. <laughs> as amateurish as everyone else is you kind of go along with it and believe it for the time you're watching it but when he turns up and he's just he's very much like do you remember those Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie sketches damn it Peter oh yeah <laughs> we need the biggest supernatural containment in the Utoxeter area it was that kind of man um, and yeah it, it it did screw up quite badly um, I, I, I won't go into the specifics but um, there are things that don't really work just because it, it was low budget and probably the filmmakers aren't as professional as uh, they could be but I, I no, it's a really good effort um, but yeah um, I was very tired by the end of this if you do get to watch it I mean I would I, I, I think it's worth watching um, you may agree with me that uh, the basketball um, may remind you of Dark Star or Rover from The Prisoner. <laughs> but yes, that was Friday night. Well, Saturday kicked off with a film that a lot of people were looking forward to, Troll Hunter. Yeah, Norwegian film about a troll hunter. That's basically what it is. It's found footage. That's the important phrase. Um... Which can be a turn off for a lot of people, but I thought this was a very good, uh, good example of it being used well. Yeah, very much a comedy. Um, yeah, spoof documentary kind of thing, isn't it? A team, a, a young film crew who follow a guy who is rumored to be uh, a troll hunter, as the title would suggest. Who's this quite crusty old bugger, isn't he? Um, with his Land Rover and his floppy hat. Um, He's very good in it, the actor. I have not made a note of his name. No, nor me, unfortunately. But he is he's great in it. He's, he's he reminded me of Captain Haddock. Yeah. Well he reminded <laughs> me of Robert Shaw in Jaws, is one of these guys yeah. who really doesn't want these guys following him around, but then eventually warms to them. Um doesn't warm to them but kind of sees as an advantage in having them around and um the the, the pleasure of the film is I guess um they've really worked out what would happen if the government did have a black ops the Norwegian government had a black ops uh, department that dealt with trolls so there's a lot of he's sitting there looking quite either world weary or traumatised a lot of the time talking about things that can happen while you're out troll hunting 
which did lead me to think because obviously it's all done on kind of HD cameras um, we wouldn't actually see a troll or if we did it would probably be a dwarf in a rubber mask there's one in the poster well this is it I'd mm. not heard of it before but uh, one of our friends uh, Rich Fall who we used to work with he was like oh yeah I've seen the trailer they show the, the trolls and yeah so I suppose we should talk about them or we, we should be okay revealing something yeah they're CGI they're in a kind of yeah, they're like Lord of the Rings monsters, I suppose. Aren't yeah, they? I thought they reminded something like Del Toro would conjure up as well. I thought that kind of well, obviously a fantasy fairy tale sort of element to them. But yeah, they look very much like um, if anyone sort of had lead miniatures from Games Workshop in the eighties. They're that caricaturish thing with the big hook noses, but they're generally massive, aren't they? Yeah. Giants. Yeah, enormous. And you know you get a lot of all the the myth and folklore coming into play as well. Um, whether it's true that they can't be exposed to sunlight, mm -hmm. or and you know there's um yeah there's a lot of humour injected into that as well. Yeah, I mean this was a real hit, and uh, I think lots of people it'd probably be their favourite movie. Um, certainly talking to people there, I. <laughs> I wasn't that keen on it though, I've got to say. I do kind of admire it, but, um, and I've got to say, you must be taken into account with this, watching this many films in this many days, it's a bit different to watching them in isolation. So with this, there was a certain thought of, I could have stayed in bed this morning, or, you know, I, I could have gone and, I could go and get a coffee. Um, it just felt, you know, well, this and Tucker and Dale were both one joke films, but Tucker and Dale seemed to be done with a lot more craft. Um, in terms of the writing, this seemed like the joke was, if this were real, what kind of things could this guy be talking about? You know, and it was yeah, taking fairy tale things and trying to apply them to how would a modern, you know, modern technology deal with it. So yeah, the, the exposure to sunlight, the guy carries an ultraviolet kind of beam gun with him, yeah, doesn't like he? Yeah, mm -hmm. um, But also just the found footage thing made me groan a bit when that happened, because again, you're going to be watching an awful lot of found footage films if you're at a horror film festival in this uh, day and age. Yeah, that that hasn't worn off. But no, um, perfectly good. I did feel it was too long, though. Did It was nearly two hours, I think. Uh, I'm not or sure. Or did it feel it, like it? It might have felt like it. I don't think it was that long, personally. Mm. I, do, I really loved it. I thought it was really entertaining. I actually found it funnier than Tucker and Dale, um, because it's a different kind of sense of humour. Obviously, it's a Norwegian film, so maybe something's lost in translation, but it, it seemed quite broad in what it was going for, uh, jokes-wise. Um, and, I, yeah, I loved all the... They weren't really twists and turns, but I was sort of wondering what the outcome of this could possibly be. And mm. there's a, a funny little there is a great at the end. gag at the very end, yeah. Yeah, but broadly, it did feel like um, I've said this to you before. It felt like it could have been a really good three or four minute sketch on Big Train, mm. that old sketch show. Um, f filling up nearly two hours, I felt was uh, it outstay its welcome. But uh, I'm very much in a minority, it seems. Though. Yeah, I, th I think most people seem to like it. Um, I'm, I'm definitely one of them. Um, I just—I <laughs> I really always suspected you. <laughs> I um, yeah, I just love the sort of hum humanistic elements of it all, like how he's having these issues of dealing with the trolls because it. Um, no one really cares about him, you know. The government, he's he's because he's black ops. He's, yeah, he's you know, trying he's to out expose there, like, them born by himself. Some, yeah. um, and also, when you do get to see the trolls, they're. they're they're so well done that you 
you have a sort of connection with them. You know the way their faces are emotive. And yeah, they do look quite a sorry. Certainly, bunch, like don't they? towards the end, you're like, oh my god. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I can see what you mean. It might have been a bit too long, but no, damn but good. Yeah, big hit with a lot of other people. Next up was the long-awaited, not really sequel. The Wicker Tree. The Wicker Tree with, uh, yes, Robin Hardy, director of The Wicker Man, was there to introduce this um, extraordinary piece of work. <laughs> In fact, we've got to mention Robin Hardy. Um, he was amazing. Given all the other directors there seemed to really understand the Fright Fest crew, uh, uh, crowd and what they'd be up against and were joking around with them. Robin Hardy did seem like he was at some sort of 70s garden party or something, or <laughs> wife-swapping party. <laughs> he put his keys in the basket. Yeah, because he he's, he's got to be quite elderly now, I suppose. And, and yeah, it's taken him a long time to raise the funding for this um, sort of semi-sequel, isn't it? It's well, it's pretty much a totally different film. Yeah, I mean, they, they share a similar name. I thought that was about There's it, the really. Summer Isle kind of thing mm. going on. and one of the main villains has the same jacket as Christopher Lee <laughs> yeah, in, in the original um, but yeah the, uh, oof, what should we say about this um, you all know the original Wicker Man and, um, Edward Woodward as this sort of virgin Protestant policeman going off to uh, some meet some pagan weirdos on a, on a remote Scottish isle this puts a variation on that in that you've got a sort of evangelical Christian teenage pop singer um, which shows you how long in development this was she was possibly originally meant to be a Britney Spears it, kind of character she's more like Leanne Rhymes. oh yeah because it's yeah. based on his book Cowboys, Cowboys for Christ, for Christ. Mm. well I think we were hearing he had the script then he had to adapt it into a novel to that's right yeah. yeah to get somewhere with it um Actually, her performance was pretty good. The actress, I thought, was you know, given that he's quite a knockabout, very cheaply done film. And I don't really think she had that much to do, really. Not really. She, yeah, I guess. She just had to sort of look dolled up and uh, yeah, say how much she loved God and how yeah. everyone can be converted. But yeah, the much funnier role was her boyfriend, the cowboy, the cowboy, yeah, Steve. I think was it. Oh, uh, You'll forgive us if we didn't scroll notes down during these films. I know the actor's called Henry. Right, <laughs> we'll Let's call him Henry. Henry. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but yeah, she's obviously a big pop star in the states, but with this evangelical um, background. And so at the beginning of the film, we see that she's going to go off to Scotland, the godless people of Scotland, <laughs> as a missionary. And um, wasn't there that great caption when we then cut from what's meant to be America to Scotland on the English borders? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Possibly near Oxbridge University. <laughs> um, but yeah, the whole thing's done ab absolutely for laughs. I'm th I think so anyway. I hope so. Yeah, because I, I don't think it was, and this is my problem with the film, um, That that's what really made it quite a an annoying experience for me. I'd, I don't know how many laughs were meant to be in there. Uh, I just, it's hard to tell. Yeah. I mean, yeah, certainly... I don't, I don't know what mindset he had. <laughs> well, the thing is, uh, I, I said this to you, and I know uh, Ben from uh, Mondo Movie agreed, it was very much like the stuff Ken Russell did in the 80s, except, you know, with Ken Russell, he's absolutely playing it for laughs. This, it did suffer because... I think a lot of it was played for laughs, but then in the last act, it tried to be a genuine horror movie, and it has a wretched finale, doesn't it? Oh God, yeah, <laughs> protracted as well. It, it's kind of like the ending of The Wicker Man, even if 
it's very famous and it's like one of the best finales in horror and you know how are you going to how well are you going to try and top that or are you going to try and go in a totally different direction and it just kind of does a really anemic kind of version of it doesn't it mm. um, but no I, I I did enjoy it I laughed quite a lot at it um, Honeysuckle Weeks was magnificent in it I suppose she's the nearest thing to Britt Eklund in it as this uh very feisty local woman, <laughs> uh, and who's the kind of Sir Billy Connolly butler to? Uh, yeah, because there's a new generation. There's a new Lord Summerisle in this. I can't remember his name, but I know he's in Space. He plays um, right. Simon Pegg's boss with like the one-eyed comic. Oh owner. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd recognised him from somewhere. Mm. Wow, it was Space Day on Saturday then, yeah. wasn't it? Um, yeah, I, well, I was like I say, I was underwhelmed because I couldn't see if it was being played for last. Mm. Maybe that's my issue. I sh- but the fact that Robin Hood has not done that much, whereas Ken Russell's got this body of work yeah. where you can say, oh, because even the Wicker Man, yeah, there's a lot of laughs in there, but mm. there's something about it. It's a genuinely creepy atmosphere, yeah, though, isn't it? This and, and the sex in it's the Wicker Man itself is kind of bawdy, but it genuinely is quite. It is a genuinely quite a sexy movie, and it kind of justifies itself. You've got that direct dialogue from Christopher Lee about why is paganism any less valid than Christianity. This, there wasn't really a lot of point to making it, was there? It's like the Schaffer script for Wicker Man had a definite point. This just seemed like he fancied making a film, perhaps. Mm. And, you know, Wicker Man's got a reputation, so that might um, enable him to do it. Um, the other thing to mention, this does actually feature Christopher Lee in a cameo, and he's got to be the thick end of 90 now, hasn't he, Christopher Lee? Well, it wasn't his birthday, um, yeah. one, one of our shows. One of their shows, yeah, I can't remember how old. He's well in his 80s, though. Mm. But he he appears, and it's kind of sad, because he does look very elderly now, and the fact that he is meant to be playing Lord Summer Isle... Um, it just kind of as you know, you'd rather remember him as he's such a great performance. Well, in it's a, totally in crowbarred in as well. It's yeah, absolutely pointless. It's just to get his name on the credits, I think. Yeah, isn't it? and Christopher Lee. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, the Wicker Tree. We have come a long way to remind you folks about Jesus. Okay, so leaving you down the pub, I did go and watch Fright Night 3D, which um, because I hate 3D films. Yeah, that's why it's. If it had been in conventional two D, would you? Have, I would have uh, watched it. Yeah, I would have given yeah, yeah. it a go. But I, yeah, I've just uh, got a, a physical aversion to three D movies. Yeah. I mean, I've got. To say, um, I, I'm not that bothered by three D, but these particular glasses, I, I'm afraid I can't tell you what kind they were. But they were quite. I wear glasses anyway. It's quite uncomfortable to have these on the tip of my nose. Um, and it wasn't like the three D was particularly needed. Um, it's. The fact that I tell you I took the glasses off several times during this and just to see if I could watch the film properly and there was like you could probably manage it. There was a little bit of red and green flaring around things. Um, it was okay, I suppose, but really nothing special. You know, I've not I've got to say I've not seen the original Fright Night, so it's not like I've got it on a pedestal or have bad memories of it or whatever. But um, how was Colin Farrell? Oh, no, sorry. How was David Tennant? David Tennant was fine. Someone said, I can't remember who, but someone said, oh, it was clear they tried to cast Russell Brand and didn't get him. There's a physical resemblance because when he turns up as Peter Vincent, uh, in the original notes, Roddy McDowell is a sort of um, late-night horror TV host. In this, the Peter Vincent character, David Tennant, has a kind of Vegas um, stage show 
kind of some over the top uh, conjurer or mm. something. Um, yeah, the whole Russell Brand look with the hair and the beard turns out to just be his stage persona. He just looks like the David Tennant you'd know from Doctor Who. Um, no, he does perfectly fine, although I, I guess I got a real feeling that a lot of the gags were just the fact that you're hearing him because he's pretty much playing his Cockney version, uh, his, his Cockney persona from Doctor Who, but the fact he's swearing and um, making really crude references to the showgirls he's working with, I think that's meant to be funny in itself. It wasn't that good. Um, yeah, it was a problem we've had with several other movies. Uh, some of it was played for laughs a lot of it tried to be a straight horror movie the thing was just quite bland it wasn't that bad it's just it wasn't that noteworthy either mm. um, and yeah if you're going to do 3D mm, why are you going to do 3D <laughs> um, that's my question yeah uh, you know it's, it was perfectly okay but uh, nothing special so we seem to be saying this about quite a few films, but there was a definite buzz around the next movie we watched on Saturday, which was The Woman mm. by Lucky McKee. Are you familiar with No, but work? most people seem to be, um, have been familiar with his other work. I, I wasn't, um, nor the book that this was based on, and I've forgotten the author. Jack Ketchum, I think. Oh yeah, yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, um, yeah, a lot of hype surrounding this. Um, I had been warned by Dan um, of the Mondo Variety, who <laughs> had already seen it. I think he had uh, he'd went to a screening, and he said this is going to be very divisive, and I think that's exactly what it was. Um, we sat in an area where I think we were the negative side of things weren't we even during the film because a lot of the time you're kind of judging people's reactions from you know fidgeting looking at watches maybe laughing at the wrong moments this um, I'm sure you won't mind me saying but Lee um, Count Fosco of Movie Matters did turn to me halfway through looking really weird and say what do you think of this and I just kind of shrugged my shoulders and he went it's awful awful <laughs> um, I was checking my watch loads and I've got a really annoying watch with no light so I I have to keep getting in a weird position to get a glint from it, um, exactly, which isn't a very good sign, you know. Yeah, but I I thought this started well. It's got um, a sort of prologue which uh, felt very uh, pretentious on me. European, because the setup is there's a wild woman living out in the woods, um, covered in filth, um, and there's a great shot at the opening when she's got this baby and um, a wolf goes over to it which presumably was done with digital effects or combining two images but it's it did pull me up a bit that you're thinking how exactly was that done mm. they wouldn't really do that would they and <laughs> thinking I'm not sure <laughs> but that was really well done but then from there it because um, you're not you're not sure where this is set at all it could be a kind of caveman epic or something then you cut to this modern scene with this awful family, which, uh, as you say, the lead actor there looks a lot like Will Ferrell, which puts you off guard. Um, with what a sort of teenage daughter, a very young daughter, and an adolescent boy, mm. uh, and a wife, uh, and they're at this barbecue. Um, well, I don't have to describe the entire film, but basically, the the guy. Um, He's not a survivalist, nut, is he? But he's that kind of figure. Yeah, it feels like he's of, of that ilk. Although not in a hillbilly way. It's, it's made very clear that he's got a sort of legal practice. 
Um, but basically, he goes out. He knows this. He's seen this woman on his little hunting expeditions. Captures her, gets the family to clear out the basement, and he's real. He's a real martinet, isn't he? <laughs> he's a total bastard. Um, and yeah, I suppose it had obvious things to say about you know who, who's the savage and who's the civilized person. Um, but yeah, I, uh, you possibly will agree. I think there's, I, I, there was potentially a lot of good stuff you could have done with this, but the pacing of it and the tone was all over the place. Yeah. Um, well, I, the big problem I had was yeah, you mentioned Will Ferrell already. I found it quite hard to take, to take this film seriously with this guy who looked and kind of acted a bit like him in some respects. You know the yeah, because he's quite low key and position, blank, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, of like having nothing behind him yeah. um, in much the way like American Psycho you know the Patrick Bateman character mm. he, he's got this facade but then there's another side to him which you see but also I just thought if anyone's familiar with films like Martyrs and Inside um, Frontier. Frontier it's like someone's watched that and then thought I'll, t- I'll make Malcolm in the Middle meets one of those you know this yeah, slightly dysfunctional kooky family, 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 and yeah, because the, the the meat of the plot is the woman is manacled in the basement, and I suppose the guy's not even trying to domesticate her, is he? I suppose he's probably trying to break her spirit. It was more like Cool Hand Luke, mm. and she's this wild woman who you know is blashing out and biting. Um, yeah, the it's not women, like um, yeah, the Truffauts, the <laughs> Sauvage. <laughs> yeah, and then the family predictably break down along lines of the males, the, the father and his son on one side, and the women seem to be sort of going off in a different direction. Which again, you know, it's it's a sort of potentially interesting stuff to do with that. But it took so long to get round to doing anything, and um, it dragged. It yeah, really dragged. I mean, there were some genuinely shocking moments, I suppose, in it. Um, <laughs> you're looking less impressed. Yeah. No, yeah. I mean I won't describe the scene, but yeah, towards the end, something happened which I thought was like uh, there was a real flinch from uh, the audience, but also a sigh from me because I thought, oh man, I thought this was wrapping up, and now it looks like it's going to go off into another subplot. Yeah. Um, no, I think it was a wasted opportunity. I think there was something genuinely good you could have done with this, but it didn't really didn't really pull it off but no. it seems I didn't dislike it to the extent that a lot of other certain the people I spoke to seem to really I think dislike some people it might object to it I was going to say I think there's objection I didn't I, it doesn't ha- contain that much interest for me to object to it, it, it it's just another um, fairly mundane horror movie really <laughs> <laughs> and there's a lot of them about <laughs> Um, nothing special and a lot of people did actually say oh you know he's got great technical skills and know-how and he can put a movie together but there's definitely some major issues there I thought Um, there's certainly a a sequence at the end involving dogs and I was talking to someone about it later and I said I just got so confused as to what I was watching Mm. and it just seemed very slipshod Um, well maybe that's a a good description for it (laughs) slipknot (laughs) This is our project, and it's a secret. Okay, so just to uh, break up our opinion a bit, as we say, we met some people across the weekend, and one of them was um, Rich Wells, the designer of our very nice T-shirts, which went down quite well. Yeah. There was a lot of... uh, It was a nice way of identifying people there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I just... He's 
done a few reviews that he's put up on the Mondo Movie Forum, and um, we're going to read one out that he's let us he's let us go ahead with his opinion, hasn't he? Yes. Um, yeah, we would read all of them out, but we're running very long already, so uh, we'll just stick to the woman. I think it's probably worth getting uh, someone else's opinion on that. Yeah. And uh, I'm glad to say this isn't a positive one. <laughs> um, he writes, Bloody hell, low point of the weekend. Relentlessly grim and not at all in a good way. I just didn't buy any of it. The main element of the plot set up way too early, with no time taken to introduce the characters properly. With no one behaving in anything approaching realistic human behaviour, I didn't give a shit about any of them. Along with that, you had some truly naff direction. Seems Lucky McKee's sequence of choices, the character montage set to booming full-length tracks of indie rock dirge. I forgot about the music. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like someone doing a demo of the Pixies, doesn't it? I think it's his mate's band, isn't it? And he's written a couple of the songs. It as doesn't well. surprise me. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's that's great, yeah. Rich. Thanks no, very much. Yeah, no, that reminds me. That was one of the key bits that turned me off the woman as a film was when uh, the Will Ferrell-looking character is watching her in the river through kind of the cross uh, crosshairs on his um, rifle and that music kicks in and it really feels like um, the stuff with uh, Phoebe Gates in Fast Times at Richmond High you're thinking what but she's this really grungy cave woman but they've got this yeah it feels like Stacey's mom's got it going on or something <laughs> uh, inappropriate and I don't think it was done intentionally but uh, yeah um great to meet you Rich um, and thank you very much for the beer and DVDs you left as a thank you because yeah Rich um, Rich crashed over at mine for a couple of nights okay and then in a pattern that seems to be uh, repeating itself uh, the final movie of the evening at half past eleven well supposedly half past eleven was Chillerama another anthology which was um, well several directors but uh, Joe Lynch Joe Lynch and Adam Green were on hand to introduce. I know they're big Fright Fest favourites. The crowd seemed to be uh, whooping it up yeah, along with yeah. these guys. I'm not really familiar with them at all. Yeah, I, I wasn't before I went to Fright Fest last year and um, sort of brushed up on Adam Green because um, Hatchet 2 was playing, so I watched Hatchet. Um, and I know of Frozen, which is meant to be his better film. Uh, Joe Lynch, he did Wrong, Wrong Turn, I think it okay, is, yeah. uh, which I've not seen. There's been like three or four sequels I'm not going to rush out and watch them to be honest Cannibal Hillbillies kind of thing is it yeah, yeah and I don't really I'm not really swept up in all this uh, fandom that they seem to have garnered um, yeah. especially from the quite uh, uh, I thought quite dodgy jokes about Ethiopians in the opening yeah there was a routine they did at the beginning uh, I mean I'm sure they did it off the top of their heads but saying oh we're, we were about being at Fright Fest even though the real men is at the Ethiopian film festival and then doing some fairly sub-South Park uh, gags about Ethiopia about how the Ethiopians talk wasn't it? Was yeah which went on a bit too long and I think people around us were kind of laughing with shock and yeah. delight at it <laughs> and I was just thinking I don't know I don't know. How are they going to sell the movie? Yeah, because they had it because of the fact it was on the last movie as well. So yeah. they tried to do a Q and A before the film, before anyone had seen it. Yeah, Another so the thing <laughs> the thing didn't even start screening till quarter past midnight. So it was going to have to be something very special. So yeah, I, I wasn't 
again, an anthology with a framing um, a framing story, but the framing story here, which is the, the last night of a drive-in theatre, um, went on and on and on. You know, you're used to that spending a minute or two minutes in between them, but it seemed to go on forever, these things. But uh, it's a very, very... Um, yeah, completely played for laughs, though, wasn't it? Um, the idea is there are several, uh, four films playing at this this last night, uh, which had covering uh, various decades of yeah horror and fantasy. So you got Wadzilla about a killer sperm, giant killer sperm. Uh, I was a teenage werebear, bear here in the gay sense of kind of uh, large hairy men, <laughs> in a, um, which is the point I left. Um, not Are you offended? <laughs> um, no, I was just really tired. And uh, well, I'd left after Wadzilla, so yeah. I made well, Wadzilla, it the first Wadzilla one. in fairness, started well, but then kept going and going, and it to less and less effect, you know. And there was, um, I suppose, if you're going to do something like this, which is spoofing older style films, you really need to know what you're doing. And the thing is, it was very cheaply done. Um, it's only what I'm saying is it will only work if you're able to really recreate those effects. Whereas with Wadzilla, it was meant to look like a fifties uh, monster movie. It had Ray Wise from Twin Peaks in it, didn't it? As a scientist. Right. Mm. Um, but towards the end, the effects were clearly just done on videotape, and you, it, uh, that sounds like a really anal thing to say, but it takes you out of the spell of what they're trying to do here. Yeah, because they had um, the actual. I think as the sperm grew and yeah. became more mechanical, the Chiodo brothers did it, didn't yeah, they? From the killer, killer clowns. clowns. Yeah. But then, yeah, like you say, you have these like video effects, which with process backgrounds might, and might have worked in like an eight an eighties version of yeah. For, uh, if you're spoofing trauma, though, God knows why anyone would yeah bother. But to use this for like this particular segment, uh, which had already like say gone way too long. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, it just made me want to go home. Yeah, um, the two stories we didn't sit through there were uh, Diary of Anne Frankenstein, which, going from the others, just sounded like a weak pun that wasn't going to, you know, sustain my interest, and a zombie movie. Um, um, a couple of my friends did stay to watch it, and I, I was like, really? And the fact that their response was, yeah, we'd paid for it, tend to suggest <laughs> it was more out of a sense of getting your money's worth rather than uh, genuine hilarity and enjoyment. Um, Poor guys. So, no, um, yeah, that was the end of Saturday. So, like, we had to do it at Fright Fest. I think we need to do a little break here. Yeah, we're going to go off and have a sleep and a shave. And then stumble back again. I'm so a, I might have a few Guinness. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, join us for part two of uh, Fright Fest review. Bye. Bye bye. To mix comedy and sex and lovely songs, the sort of imagined pagan world. Yeah.